Hi, this is Stan Bush. Hi, this is Stephanie Calvert. This is John Payne. This is Jack Hughes. Hey everyone, this is Britt Lightning from Vixen. Hey everybody, this is Prescott Niles. Hi, I'm Carrie Stevens. Hello, I'm Kofi Baker. This is not a test, this is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host, Joe Kay, and today our guest is Darren Pauchowitz, author of the new book, DLR Book, How David Lee Roth Changed the World, which is all about the life and career of Diamond David Lee Roth. Darren also hosts a podcast called the DLR Cast, which is also all about Diamond Dave. Since January 2024 marks the 40th anniversary of Van Halen's 1984 album, and February 2024 marks the 46th anniversary of Van Halen's debut album, we are spending some time celebrating Van Halen on this channel, and today's interview is a part of that celebration. This is an excellent deep dive on David Lee Roth with a big emphasis on his solo career, which is an aspect often overlooked by other books about Van Halen. The book is incredibly well-researched, and it's written from a very personal perspective, which makes for a very engaging read. In this interview, we discuss why Darren decided to write this book. We talk about the differences between David Lee Roth's onstage and offstage personas. We talk about our experiences of seeing Dave in concert, and we also cover what Darren does on his podcasts. You can order the DLR book on Amazon, and you can find Darren on almost all social media platforms. You can also check out the video version of Darren's podcast, The Paltrowcast, on YouTube or on TV. Yes, his podcast is actually broadcast over the air. And if you go to the website, paltrowcast.com, you can find instructions on how to watch the Paltrowcast on TV. Links to all of Darren's social media podcasts and websites are in the description below. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the author of DLR Book, how David Lee Roth changed the world, Diamond Darren Paltrowitz. You know what I like? You know what I really, really, really fucking like? Yeah! Of course, my first question has got to be, what are your thoughts on Sammy Hagar? <laughs> I've seen him live. I love the Van Hagar catalog. I think it's a very different band than with Dave. But um, there's so many similarities between Sam and Dave. Uh, they Sam wants it out there that he's a totally different person than David Lee Roth. But they're both shrewd businessmen. They're both blonde frontmen. <laughs> you know, the life of the party trying to get you to do stuff, you know, sing along, clap along, etc. 
So they were both similar in that kind of deal with being frontmen. They were both second fiddle to Eddie. We, there's no denying that Eddie was the creative genius in Van Halen. So that kind of stuff, they're totally similar. Now, Sammy's public persona is, oh, man, I'll have a tequila shot with you anytime. I'll have a drink with you. But we know that's not the reality. And Dave is also, hey, I'm the everyman. Ha ha, I'm a slacker. But the reality is he's kind of a shut-in. So I think what they both have in common is that the on-stage, on-camera party persona is not really the real guy. Right. <laughs> well put. Uh, that Hey, that's great insight. I was hoping to throw a curveball at you with that. But uh, my my actual real first question for you is, is, a, is almost more of a compliment. The foreword of your book is written by Diamond Dallas Page. That is inspired. I was really impressed with that. And that told me that this was going to be a a unique and like real personal uh, book. And uh, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I cannot believe that he insists that the diamond moniker with both of them is uh, a coincidence. It, in your heart of hearts, you, you've spoke to him. Do you believe that? Or is, is he just giving us a line? He's told me a few times that it's not true. Uh, Dallas loves music, but he's not a music centric person meaning he will always have music on. He has music on during his workouts. He goes to concerts all the time, but he also likes country. I think he likes whatever music the people who are fans of him make. So in other words, he started off publicly. If you look at old stuff of Dallas, he looks like the epitome of a hair metal guy. Right. <laughs> but Darius Rucker does DDP yoga or DDPY, so he's a Darius Rucker fan. Uh, um, what's the name of the guy with the face? Uh, Teddy Swims. Teddy Swims has done DDPY, so he's a Teddy Swims fan. Oh, okay. Okay, that makes sense. Let's go back to the, the, the real topic of your book. Diamond David Lee Ross, who you actually interviewed back in 2003. Yes. Uh, at the time, were you already a Dave Super fan, or did that sort of come into your life later? Super fan, geeked out to him big time. He did my outgoing voicemail message at the end of the interview. I told him that his book changed my life. Um, looking back at that, I have no idea how it changed my life uh, because I was still living with my parents and not pursuing the arts on any levels. But it sounded good at the time and, you know, loved Van Halen and loved so uh, Solo Diamond Dave and... A lot of the bands I liked when I was 10 years old, it's kind of embarrassing to say you still like them. Van Halen's never gone out of style for me. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and I, and I, I'm the same way. Uh, growing up, what, what was it about Van Halen? I take it it was Van Halen first, and then you got introduced to you know his, his solo stuff. Tell me about how your fandom of uh, Diamond Dave evolved from when you were a kid. I was an MTV kid for sure and a VH1 kid. And even years after Dave was gone from Van Halen, you would still see Jump On a lot between MTV and VH1. They weren't as precious about new and young. You know, VH1, when I was a kid, was starting to be branded as the old person MTV. And you'd see somebody like Sheryl Crow, and on the first album, she's an MTV artist, and on the second album, she's a VH1 artist. And VH1 were kind of 
still on board with Dave in the 90s. So he was still cutting content for them. And by content, I mean appearances and interviews and that kind of stuff in the 90s and 2000s. A little bit of MTV News stuff, but he was phased out, pushed over to VH1. And seeing Van Halen all the time, Van Hagar, Van Halen, Solo Dave, all the time, it was the videos that got me. For sure, yeah. Uh, the what is that? Uh, I'll take a bottle of anything and a glazed donut to go. I mean, that's that is striking imagery. What are some of yeah. your favorites uh, of the videos? He doesn't have that many videos, fortunately. I love a little ain't enough most, but then again, that's admitting that you like little people in blackface because that's in that video. So I love the video despite the political incorrectness because song's great. There's all sorts of eye candy, beautiful women, the cheerleader section. But the ending is what I love the most. Do you remember the ending to the Little Ain't Enough video? Yeah, isn't that the, something about his farewell tour? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's yet another video where Dave is in a fat suit. It's not yeah. the only fat suit video for Dave. And he's rolling up, you know, back to the future style in, you know, the 21st century for his, you know, joke retirement tour, which actually turned out to be only 10 days off from when he claimed he was going to retire, which was, as the book talks about, the umpteenth time when you look at everything that he was going to retire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I, you know what? It's now that you say that, I do remember that kind of going around as like a meme when he announced his retirement. Because that I don't, I, you know, for casual fans, I think that caught everybody off guard. But we'll 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 talk about that in a bit. <laughs> nice. um, so as as you grow up, you you know you you start podcasting. At some point, you start this DLR podcast. What was it about your fandom? as an adult of Diamond Dave that made you want to actually create a whole podcast around his career. I think the more you dig into Diamond Dave, the more you realize that the music isn't necessarily the most interesting thing 
that's going on. There, there, for better or for worse, are rumors about everything on the planet with Dave. And sometimes you have to go, maybe he stoked all these rumors to keep people talking. You know, when, when an artist has a fake security detail, you just, <laughs> meaning the female bodybuilders in the bikinis were not really working security for him, nor were the little people that he had. So Shots. when you have fake <laughs> security details, to me, it's all an extension of the things that I grew up loving so much, like professional wrestling and Howard Stern. Like everyone on Howard Stern, you reach a certain age where you realize, Oh, okay. How they are on the air is the exact opposite of how they are off the air. And wrestling is the same way. The bad guys in real life are generally the nicest human beings who are the most fun. And then the good guys are usually not nice, not pleasant. Uh, yeah, you're seconding that, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> except well, except uh, DDP, uh, he was a heel for a lot of his career. He's Okay, so you think about it. He started off as a heel, and in real life, he might be the nicest, most accessible celebrity you'll ever meet. So well, maybe that's an extension of him being a nightclub guy and a, a wrestling bad guy. Well, you know, maybe here, here's the exception that proves the rule. The only wrestler I've ever met briefly was uh, a million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, and he was not nice. So, you know, living the gimmick, I guess. <laughs> What year was that? Do you recall? This was last year. He was he made a like a little appearance at a local wrestling fest and that was close to my house. And I thought it would be you know funny to get get a picture with him. And uh, I after we got the photo, I all I was going to say was thank you. And uh, he was absolutely intentionally looking in the other direction. So <laughs> every now and then, there's a wrestling good guy that is the nicest. Jim Duggan, Axel Jim Duggan. Every time I encountered him, the nicest. He actually asks you so so you watch wrestling who are some of your favorites he wow. actually some people are just really good at the i'm a famous person you're going to tell this story for a lot of years so let me give you a good one to four minutes of my time supposedly paul mccartney is the best with that that he'll give everyone the 30 to 60 seconds and every time we go oh really you know yeah. like he hasn't heard that they saw him on Ed Sullivan in 1960-whatever before. Yeah, Some people are fantastic with that. And a lot of the Dave stories I hear from fans is he's the greatest to fans. Behind the scenes is a different story, but to fans, fans love him usually. Well, that's good to hear. Because, uh, you know, he's got such an interesting onstage persona. And, you know, I've read a lot about him too over the years. And my big wonder about uh, Diamond Dave is, is the man ever out of that showbiz onstage Diamond Dave persona? Is, is, there, a, is there a backstage, is there a, a version of him? Is, does he ever turn that off? Or does he truly live the gimmick? Before I wrote this book, I thought that he barely ever was out of character. And the more people I speak to, it sounds like he's only in character on stage on you know for the interview and that and then he is not that dude at home he is not that dude ever he's not that dude in the studio but the second that he knows there is a camera or a microphone he just snaps into it really quickly so if given the choice of having a conversation with him you know a 
you know, five minute conversation with him one on one where there are no cameras versus if he were a guest on the DLR cast, uh, which would you prefer? 100% in character. I'm terrified of the real human. Being. <laughs> the, the, the stories you hear. So he's a high IQ person but not with a lot of focus. So the thing is what he feels like doing right now, what's in front of him is the most important thing. And I think we've heard that about Prince a lot. Did you ever hear Kevin Smith's story about Prince? No, no, I'm not familiar with that. Kevin Smith, long story short, almost directed a documentary for Prince, but it turned out to have been uh, it would have been a Jehovah's Witness recruitment video. There's something weird yeah. about it. He didn't know what it was. And Prince, if you look at his output, you know, hundreds of hours of unreleased music that we know of at the time he died, the guy was always creating. But people who are that creative usually, um, they're, they're not like us. They're on a different wavelength. They don't relate to us uh that's where a lot of the genius comes from let's say that uh for a moment that uh diamond dave you know catches wind of this book and and calls into the dlr cast and he just says have at it whatever you've wanted to know i'm i'm here uh you know what are the questions that even after you've done all this research and you've been a lifelong fan and you know way more than most people know about him what are the questions Uh, that you would have for Dave at this point? Well, if I had time, if I knew that was going to happen, there's a round table of people I would ask, okay, what do you want to know? What do you want? (laughs) Because I do that for some of my interviews. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, they go, well, uh, this obscure movie that he was in in 1985. Well, I would want to know about a lot of these abandoned projects. Hmm. Because as you go through the book, you learn about the movie, that was contracted, pre-produced, but didn't get made in the mid eighties. You learn about the Vegas residency that was announced and didn't happen in 2004. Uh, You learn about the second book and how he had hundreds of leftover pages. You see davidleeroth.com kind of disappearing out of nowhere and going from this wealth of original entertainment to, no, that never existed. And the only reason I could find it was going through uh, archive.org and accessing a lot of that stuff. He says in his book, which came out in in 97, uh, that there's, was it 97 or 98? I'm I'm pretty sure it came out in 97. He says that he has hundreds of unreleased recordings. So you go, is he telling a tall tale or are there hundreds of unreleased recordings? Because we would find out since in the 25-ish years since the book came out that there was that John 5 album, which he's been slowly releasing tracks from. So in other words, are there now even hundreds more unreleased recordings? Wow. Yeah, the guy's always creating. Uh, This week, I think he put out a new video related to his paintings and a new theme song that I think he recorded 10 years ago about a burger place in LA. <laughs> so you just, you know that he's always creating stuff, but you don't know what he's creating and when you're going to hear it or see it. Wow. Just, just kind of an odd release schedule, I guess. Right. I don't know if there is a schedule. <laughs> I think it's, 
you think I'm kidding, but I yeah. think it's just him reaching out to somebody on his team and go, Hey, what about that thing? And they go, what thing? That thing, uh, that thing that I did about this, this, and this. And they go, okay, we'll look for it. And then they have to put it out in the next 20 minutes. And because there's never a description of what these things are or the credits on them. That's why I think it's all just immediate. Here's what I feel like right now. Mm. John Five was telling me, and I'm sorry if this is a long answer, Joe, but oh no, go on. When I interviewed John Five before this was definitely going to be a book, I asked, "Do you find out in advance that the Dave songs you worked on are coming out?" And he's like, "No, nah, I find out through blabbermouth uh, oh. news alerts." And so the songs are not registered with ASCAP or BMI. He doesn't get a, a tip off from Team Dave; it's coming. It's just he goes like everyone else. Oh, cool, a new John Five song. Oh, that's that is cool. I mean, that shows you at least that uh, that he, although he's been incredibly successful commercially in his yeah. career, that he truly you know creates for just the love of creating art. And, exactly, you know. exactly. I don't think most people pick up on that. That he already had his massive, massive hits that will continue to produce millions of dollars of royalties every year. And the dude is just checking off bucket list things all the time. So if he goes, you know, I want to learn Mongol Mongolian folk music oriented guitar, he's going to do it. You don't necessarily hear that he's doing it. He just feels like doing it. And one day, eight years later, he puts out a video of it without a description. And then we go, what is this? Yeah. And they never clarify. And... You know, his career the last 20, 25-ish years has kind of been that. Because, you know, going back to everything, once he leaves Van Halen, he's on the typical, you know, record, tour, record, tour, record, tour, uh, cycling. And then after he leaves Warner Brothers in 94, it becomes a mayhem free-for-all of we don't know where he was half the 90s. Oh, wow. You know, one thing I noticed about reading your book, and it was something that I, I, I've, it, it helped me uh, direct, like, it helped me realize this thought, I guess I always kind of had under the surface, was that um, he really seems to like to let people talk about him instead of, like, just talking about himself and telling you what's going on. Because when I think of, like, his appearances on the Joe Rogan podcast, I can't make heads or tails of half of that. <laughs> and yeah. that was, that. that's kind of like the meme of his interviews is that like he's doing the Shabbat, blah, 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 you know, and all over the place. Yeah. And I think he just, and again, reading your book really kind of drove that home for me is that he just likes people talking about him and he'd rather that be out there than him trying to sell a narrative, which is in stark contrast to just about every one of his contemporaries in music. Totally. And this thought did not occur to me until a month or two ago. You remember the whole Sammy Hagar, Dave can perform with me anytime. And Dave goes, I'm ready. And Sammy goes, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Sammy's explanation was, do you know how hard it was to deal with him on the Sam and Dave tour and this, that, and then, now, let me give you a, a thing, and no one has been able to um, contradict me on this. When has David Lee Roth ever knocked Sammy Hagar on the Sam and Dave tour? When did David Lee Roth ever talk about the Sam and Dave tour? 
Right. Yeah. No, I, that's, that's my thing. I can never, you know, I, I did a, I did a video on my YouTube channel years ago about um, Van Halen, something or another. And when I was looking back through comments, I was frustrated. I couldn't find concrete remarks from Diamond Dave on anything relevant, but Sammy had a whole list of, you know, quotes I could pull. Yeah. Like when Sammy was asked to join Pantera as its vocalist. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't have beef with Sammy. Um I just have beef with people in general who go, Yeah, man, anytime, man. And then you go, Well, how about Tuesday? I'm busy. Right. Well, Wednesday, I'm busy. I thought you said anytime. Yeah. Uh, his his persona, he's kind of this Jimmy Buffett-esque character that's, you know, the perennial good guy. Oh, and yeah. you go like, I don't think good guys fly private, personally. <laughs> and, and then, you know, going back to the whole Gene Simmons thing, the whole like crotchety, I'm going to take your every last dollar, you know, good they died of drugs and alcohol because they're poison. And you're supposed to boo him. But then you look at all the charity work that Gene Simmons does that's super under the radar and helping kids. And you go, what? So he's basically you know, overcharging people to give back to charity, like a real life Robin Hood, and then doesn't want any of the credit for it. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So it's important to not uh, be too ironclad in your opinions about people until you know sort of the, the full story. And, yeah. and I think I think your book helps to do that for Dave, because he is hard to understand, I think, at first for casual fans. But going back to your book, you know, when you were putting this together, you said you, you've, you've written, you know, two books before. Um, but when you were writing this one specifically, were there other books that you had read or come across that that either inspired you to start this project or provided you some guidance on how you wanted to present it? That's a great question. Really great question. For better or for worse, I don't write like other people. So when people read my writing, they either go, this is terrible, or they go, we hear his voice. This is a person speaking because I speak like I write. And I think that a lot of people who write books trying to elevate the intelligence level. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that said, I loved Dave's autobiography because you read it and you go, that's his voice. Those are his words, whether or not somebody refined it a little bit and they cleaned up some of the syntax. So, you know, the book that I wrote before this is with a great author out of Ohio, D.X. Ferris. And we wrote a, a book. I'm sorry, I can't speak to it. He wrote we wrote a book called Good Advice from Professional Wrestling. I was looking at different quotes from wrestlers and wrestling adjacent people about how to apply that into everyday living for your benefit. Uh, PMA, positive mental attitude. So there's a little bit of that in this book because to me, a song is not just entertainment. To me, I like to see where it came from, who wrote it, what were the circumstances, and also sometimes pick apart the person if they're still singing it the same exact way at 70 that they did when they're 20. So I like to know how the magic tricks are done. I also like facts. There's a lot of errors in hard rock legend written biographies and autobiographies. Sammy's book has so many inaccuracies about Van Halen. Uh, Motley Crue's book has so many inaccuracies about Motley Crue. 
Oh yeah, I, I believe that. You know, I I learned that by reading this website called Chronological Crew, which will take you days to get through. And it was basically every day in the life of Motley Crue of what they did that day, where they were, what happened. And it pointed out, well, the book says this, but they were actually there. And you can say the same thing about just about every Ozzy Osbourne official thing. It totally is there to diminish the, the roles of Bob Daisley, Lee Kerslake, Jakey Lee, Carmine Apathy, uh, everyone that Sharon Osbourne doesn't like. Yeah, so yeah. I... I knew that I wanted to write something that sounds like my gibberish yet was factual yet also was to the diehards. Like this is not the book that makes you start to like David Lee Roth. This is the book that you already know who he is. You know about some of the myths and then you want to know, are they true or not? Yeah. And I, I think that, I, I think that absolutely comes through because I'm a fan too, you know, yeah, you and, got 1984 right behind you, right there. Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And it's uh, that's that's why I love I I don't come across books like these too often because I have a I have a bookshelf full of rock star biographies and memoirs and and that kind of stuff. But a lot of the times, you know, the the books are meant to be like introductory or like you say you know there's some axe grinding or more more often than that i find like if it's written by the artists themselves legend building yeah and myth making and that that does get a little tiresome so i often appreciate you know a fan's perspective especially one whose voice comes through and like i said i mean opening with diamond dallas page that was like <laughs> That told me that this was, you know, not not something you banged out in a weekend. This is some of a passion project for you. So I thank you, Joe. I, I could use you to to counter some of those reviews on Goodreads and on Amazon. <laughs> there's one of them that said, and I I think sometimes you have to laugh at your critics. It said that there's no story to this book, and that well, and that just the author combining a bunch of anecdotes. And you go, no, that's no, not not true. No. I. I worked really hard on it because I wanted to document so many things that are not documented. And a lot of people who worked with Roth kind of give you the, well, this is not for a major publication. This isn't coming out anytime soon. Why should I give you my time? And I'd have to go, Diamond Dave is arguably the greatest rock frontman of all time, if not one of, you know, that kind of a thing. There's not been a book in 25 years he doesn't give a lot of interviews, and if he keeps up this way and Van Halen keeps up this way, people are not going to remember Van Halen. Just like Creedence Clearwater Revival and Grand Funk Railroad, other bands that were like the biggest band in the world, and legacy management has diminished it due to infighting, not keeping merchandise out there. Like, how many Creedence t-shirts do you see out yeah, there? Yeah, that, that, those are great comps. <laughs> and... That Chronicle Greatest Hits album is 20 songs, and pretty much every song was a hit on that album. Yeah. How many bands have 20 hits? Right. Yet no one talks about Credence unless they're quoting the dude in The Big Lebowski. <laughs> so I feel that with Dave, there's certain elements of his career. We're kind of conditioned to go, he was in Van Halen. They were one of the biggest bands ever. He, he quits Van Halen, which I don't think he did. Mm. couple of hits and just like paradise and then he's gone 
and then the 96 MTV v- VMAs, and that blows up and he's gone. And then Van Halen reunites in 2007, and then he's gone. And you're like, ah, there's kind of more to that story than that, just a little bit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's interesting you say that because that what pops in my mind was there wasn't there that story of uh, when he was out in Vegas in like 2020 and he walked past some apartment or uh, hotel room with some frat boys who were partying and the <laughs> jump was playing. And he, he goes, knocks on the door and they don't know who he is. You know, that's sort of that kind of thing where if, if he's out of the spotlight, I remember Billie Eilish said yes. she didn't know who Van Halen was. Can you name a Van Halen? Who? <laughs> I'm going to start crying. Because the Van Halen brothers, you know, I, and I guess we know now is because Eddie was sick. But like when we didn't know that, uh, we thought they were like kind of weird and cagey and closed off from, you know, the rest of the world. And it seemed that Dave was voicing some frustration that they couldn't, you know, get out on the road and, you know, perform. Agreed. The Billie Eilish one was really telling. But I don't think that before that happened that I really thought about if you were born in, let's say, so Billie Eilish is what, 22, 23, around there? Yeah. So she was born in 2000, give or take a couple of years. And you go, why would she know who Van Halen is? Yeah. Because if their supposed commercial peak was 84, 85, you go, so her parents would know who Van Halen is. Okay, so Billie Eilish, who is an entertainment professional, doesn't know them. That means a whole generation of people, aside from people who did listen to their parents, don't know them. And when you go to Hot Topic or uh, Urban Outfitters or one of those places where, where you buy your rock t-shirts, you see a, a lot of Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Joan Jett, Aerosmith, no Van Halen shirts, which which is an absolute shame because yeah. that logo, that logo is what the best logo in classic rock. One of for sure, and you know I get targeted advertising because I buy a lot of you know black T-shirts with logos on them, and yeah, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, there you go. Okay, a couple days ago is targeting me with Iggy Pop shirts from i think lucky jeans or lucky brand or that kind of a thing and the way things are going eventually people will might think that iggy pop was more popular than van halen because he had t-shirts same with joan jett sure oh that yeah i never thought of that uh that is a good point and and you know that's too bad but i mean to the point about this book that's why this book is is uh is really positive and another thing i want to say about your book uh, kind of on this same point is that uh, there's a heavy em- emphasis on Dave's solo years outside mm-hmm. of Van Halen. And as a Van Halen fan, I've I've read some Van Halen books. And, you know, that story has been told. And you do recount his time in Van Halen, but not to the degree uh, of other books. And, and you put the emphasis on Dave's solo years, which in my mind, I think those are the missing years. So, you know, kudos on that. And and Thank on you. that topic, I guess my question would be, you know, when you were going through uh, his his solo catalog, what do you think music-wise is the most underappreciated aspect of his ca- solo catalog? I think his strength is his weakness in that it's all over the place. 
So, oh, interesting. Yeah. So Edom and Smile has nothing to do with the Crazy from the Heat EP because Crazy from the Heat EP is old timey style covers. Yeah. And then Edom and Smile at times is like the record that Van Halen should have made after 1984. But then at the same time, it does a little bit of the loungy cover thing on a few of the songs. Then the next album is a lot of drum machines and keyboard bass and pre-computerized kind of stuff. And it, it's a pop record. And I really like Skyscraper. A lot of the Dave diehards I speak with hate Skyscraper. I, I'm a big Skyscraper fan, even if Two Fools a Minute is garbage. And a couple of the songs are, are garbage. I, but, I'm an 80s guy, so I'm, I'm with you on that. I like that record. I like that. And then the next album, it's weird production. Uh, it's not mastered correctly, in my humble opinion, but it's a Bob Rock album around the same time he made Dr. Feelgood and the Black album, which I don't think people realize he did that at the same time. And it's more song oriented, but it's not anything like Skyscraper. And then the next album is an album that's like half blues. And then it has a country song and a reggae song. It, do you know the song No Big Ting? Uh, I, I I listened to that one a long, a long time. I listened to that album a long time ago and yeah. didn't really revisit it. <laughs> it's, it's lousy. Uh, no yeah. Ting. Uh, my co-host on the DLR cast, Steve Roth, that's one of our go-to staples about like, how bad is it? No Big Ting bad? And Steve like, it's not that bad. And it's... It's embarrassing, yeah. but he has Travis Tritt on the record and he covers Willie Nelson. It's just, again, it's old timey Americana stuff. And then the next album is a return to form where he's trying to sound like Van Halen at times and sort of modern about rock. The, the, the 2003 Diamond Dave record? Uh, the DLR band album. Oh, okay. Okay. Couple. that That's the return to form. Okay. And then the next album, Diamond Days, which you just referenced, is a covers album and then randomly has a song called Thug Pop on it. And you go, wait, what? Right. <laughs> it's, it's just so unfocused and he can't stick along the same path. So let's say you love ACDC. Yes, they changed lead singers, but it still sounds like ACDC. Give or take the, the production techniques. It's still riffy kind of stuff. And Dave never makes the same album twice. He doesn't do the same thing on schedule. You don't know what you're going to get. So if you love Just Like Paradise, you probably are going to hate most of the 90s output. I remember years ago when I was getting into Van Halen and the extremities around it, I loved, of course, the first two Diamond Dave solo albums and A Little Ain't Enough. But as yeah. I'm listening to this 90s stuff, I... I you know, years ago, I remember thinking like, what is this crap? Like, I thought maybe he was chasing something, but I, I just didn't know enough about his career at that point. And I never, to my to my regret, never revisited it. But now reading your book, well, thank now you. I'm going to revisit all this. So. There, there are gems on all these albums. Um, She's My Machine, which was the single on Your Filthy Little Mouth, is great. They're, they're oh, yeah, yeah. great songs. Uh, Big Train, which he did in Vegas 2020, is great uh he it's it's a really cool song and then if you go to the album before but i talked about loving a little ain't enough sensible shoes is cool but if you're 
10 years old and you hear Sensible Shoes, why would you like that song? When you're 10 years old, you don't like philosophical songwriters. You kind of want choruses more than you do storytelling. So there's a little too much storytelling once the 90s come, as opposed to just like Paradise, which is just hook after hook after hook. Because the intro to Just Like Paradise, you could argue the keyboard part is a hook. The intro guitar riff is a hook. The pre-record, the pre-chorus stuff is a hook. The chorus is a hook. It's just hook after hook. And then somehow in the 90s, he goes, nah, people want to hear me talk and tell a story. You go, do they? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I remember the, the 2003 covers album. The one that stuck out for me on that one was he covers... Steve Miller's Shubop or Shubop yeah. to Ma Ma Ma. I, I like that Steve Miller song. So I remember like, I thought, I, I remember thinking that album cover was kind of embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I had to catch myself because I'm like, well, he like he knows this song at least. That's a good reference. That's a good deep cut. So yeah, I'm, you know, that's my big takeaway of, of going through your book is that I, there's a huge, chunk of this catalog that I, I really want to revisit with like fresh, you know, ears. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that should be the goal or that should be something that anyone who writes a book about music, hopefully anyone who reads that book, that's the end result. So you, thank you. Thank you. Accomplished that. But there's that there's so many now gaps and holes in Dave's catalog. So for example, the, best of that he did through Rhino Records or Warner in the late 90s that's focused on his solo career. The opening song is called Don't Piss Me Off, which I think was a leftover from the prior album. It's really good. It was co-written by the same guy, I think, who wrote She's My Machine, but it's really good, and that's disappeared from streamers. The DLR band album, a couple of the songs are on, on Amazon, but it's an incomplete posting on there, and it's not on any of the other ones. Then they pulled the Van Halen reunion album, A Different Kind of Truth, from yep. streamers. And about that. all that's going on. Then there's a couple of live things that are only on his YouTube channel. Then in the past couple of weeks, he's pulled a couple of the Van Halen re-records from Spotify and all that. So Jump is gone. And wow. you go, so there's no announcement. It's just one day you go, I want to listen to Blank. And then you go, oh, that doesn't exist interesting so it's this self-mutilizing practice where you go i really like that song oh i guess i won't hear it legally ever again because it's been pulled for whatever reason i remember reading that uh uh, wolfie van halen uh blamed dave for pulling the the reunion album off streaming and he sounded a little frustrated about that did i mean i mean these gaps you're talking about, do you have any insight onto to why that is? My main theory, which not everyone agrees with me on, is the a different kind of truth album and the Live in Japan 2015 album are part of a record contract with Universal or Interscope, which Irving Azoff, their manager, put them over to because he had his ties to Universal. And so the 10 years uh, or the 10 year license expired, came back to the band. I feel that there's a Warner Brothers or Warner Music Group renegotiation happening. In other words, it's like, okay, we'll give you this album now. 
give us more of an advance or give us a rights reversion on this, or they're using it to sweeten the pot. I don't think it's as simple as, oh, Dave doesn't like it, although the word is Dave doesn't like it. Oh, <laughs> that's an interesting theory. I, I, it makes more sense that it would be like uh, behind the scenes, you know, business bullshit than um, Dave, you know, meticulously going through Spotify and ah, I wasn't sounding good on that one. And that, that sounds like out of character, especially, you know, given all the free stuff he just posts on his social media. If you go through your levels, your faces, almost like a 12 step program for Diamond Dave fandom, you, you, uh, steps one through 10. You're, you're going like, this guy's a genius. Everything he's doing is a chess move. He's, he's playing chess and we're playing checkers. And then the more people you speak to that work with him, you certain at a certain point go, no, they're, no, no. There's, these are people who are paranoid and not necessarily making the right decisions. And sometimes by luck, they made a brilliant move, but it wasn't fully calculated. So I look at the situation again and I go, Van Halen is killing its own legacy by the lack of merchandise, by not putting out vintage archival live video because they were the visual band of the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. It was that live show that sold them because when you look at the charts of Van Halen, it's not like Running With The Devil was this top 10 hit. You know, Jump was their only number one hit. But in retrospect, we've kind of made these songs into hits, whether or not they were hits. Kind of like how The Who, I've read somewhere The Who only had one top 40 hit. But listen to a a classic rock radio station in the U.S., and there's a Who song every hour on the hour. (laughs) And so we think that The Who had 30 hits, but The Who really only had one top 40 single. Just like Led Zeppelin, I believe, if I'm correct, only had one top 40 single, which was Whole lot of Love. Right. Uh, Stairway was not a, a commercially released single, but it's now a number one on every countdown yeah. or historic kind of thing. So with, with Van Halen, the legacy stuff started really well, and then now your music's not available, you don't have archival product, you don't have new product, except to remaster what we already have. Cool. Yeah. Good job. The interesting thing is, you know, at some point, you know, Wolfie will own that whole Van Halen legacy. And I wonder if there will come a point where he sets Mammoth to the side and takes a break from touring and then just really drills down on, you know, actually getting the archive out. I follow him on social media. He strikes me as like almost annoyed or not almost absolutely annoyed one fans harangue him about Van Halen stuff. So I clearly see there's no motivation for him to go through all that at this point of his career. And that makes sense. But, you know, maybe there's hope that, you know, at some point in the future, you know, that'll change. If, if I were to predict, I would say five to 10 years from now, there will be a Wolfie plays Van Halen tour. Yeah. That the (laughs) demand will just be so high. The money will be so high he's going to go, of course I'm going to do it. I have to pay for X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Or I want to, you know, make my friends a bunch of money. Right. I don't think it's an integrity thing. I think that when you look through some of your favorite artists ever, do you remember when Todd Rundgren did this tour with the Cars? No. Todd Rundgren in 2000, 
2001, 2000, something crazy in the early 2000s. There's a band called The New Cars. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, I, I know about that. Yeah. It's the drummer and keyboardist. No, I think it was the, I think it was the drummer, Elliot Easton. No, no. no. Okay. I, I remember now. It was Greg Hawks, Elliot Easton. Then it was Todd Rundgren's drummer, Todd Rundgren's bass player, and Todd Rundgren. And it was basically Todd Rundgren doing a Rick Ocasek impression. And he'd play a couple of his hits, one new song, and then the Cars hits. And they were asking him at the time, and they're, they're going, well, why'd you do this? And he went, ah, I, got, I had some debts to pay off. I had some bills. And he was just point blank. And you look at Rundgren's career, yeah. because he'll have periods where he goes, I'm never playing Hello, It's Me ever again. I'm just doing Utopia stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the next tour, it's Todd plays the hits. Yeah. Before you get out of here, one thing we got to talk about, Diamond Dave's Rocks Vegas. Were You were at those shows as well? Which ones did you see? I think I saw the 10th and 11th. Okay. Um, My wife and I got the, like, the four years ago today. Oh, yeah. And we were trying to figure out if her video of everybody wants some was the one that Justin Hawkins was watching. I don't think it is, but we were pretty close to the stage. Oh, okay. So you you were down on the ground. Yeah. You okay. were in the bleachers or the, uh, the weird cat. Uh, what do you call that at house of blues that it's not bleachers, but it's kind of like a, the playboy mansion looking thing that upstairs. <laughs> Oh yeah, the, I don't know. Uh, the the I, I was up there. I was up in, in the in the balcony seats. I was to the to the left of the stage, kind of looking down. I had a side view. Uh, on oh, the cool. Tent. Yeah. Were, were you on the Al Frankie side or the Ryan side? Hmm. If I if I could tell the difference between those. Oh, the guys in the, in Roth's band from that era are people you should really really be watching. Oh really? really? Okay really watching. So Frankie, the blonde guitar player is in the atomic punks doing the Eddie stuff. Oh, and right. Okay. Yeah. There was a little while where he was in rat during the pandemic. Okay. Then uh, Ryan, the bass player, who's also the music director writes and produces and scores things in a, in a big way. So he's under the radar, really successful. And yeah, the drummer who did that show still drums with people. The drummer who replaced him still does stuff. Danny Wagner does stuff. They all do stuff. It's just Dave never put out, here's the people in my band and why right. they're with. So I'll get off the soapbox. <laughs> oh, no, that's a good point. Because what I do remember about that show um, was I had no idea who was in his band. You know, yeah. I didn't have any expectations that Steve Vai was going to come out. But like... I remember seeing those guys come out, and I remember thinking, like, "Gosh, they're young. They're these aren't like you know journeymen." At least at at, at that point. What are your memories of uh, that night? How did that stack up against you know? I assume you've seen them other times in concert. You know, what 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 do you, what was your takeaway from that residency? It was definitely a declined version of what I first seen of live of of Dave in the early two thousands. Definitely. A decline in the set list, a decline in the performance. There's, it's not the same guy. I was just going for, you know, paying tribute. He's, he's one of my favorites. And I think that early 2000s band might have been my favorite David Lee Roth band because he had Ray, who's now been in corn for 15 ish years. 
I think that Ray is Dave's drum, favorite, uh, best drummer ever. You're supposed to say it's Greg Bissonette. I say it's Ray Luzier. So you had him, James Lomenzo, who's back in Megadeth playing bass. The two guitar attack of Toshihi Keita. I don't know what he's done. I think he's back in Japan. And Brian Young. I think Brian Young might have technically been his best guitarist. Yes, Steve I is the best ever, and he wrote that stuff. I get it. But Brian Young had the benefit of, you know, 20 years of being around the Atomic Punks and having the record deal. And he wasn't 24 years old when he joined Dave's band. So it was such a great backing band and a great set list. Then you go to 2020 and he's playing the tracks. Yeah. And he's not moving a lot. And he does these long-winded rants. I remember him uh, doing that thing. Uh, it was like a... He was like like shaking his neck to hit some high note, and I I really tried to not be critical during the show. But when he when I saw him do that, I remember thinking like, oh, that's sad, because I I've seen the, I've only seen one other singer do that before, and then that same guy retired a week later. Yeah, I look. I'm glad I went. Yeah, I'm glad we all gave each other COVID. <laughs> because that was about two months before the world changed yeah. in a big way um, I was hacking my brains out uh, around then I was on a cruise and I'm like oh, I'll get through it I'll just have another drink that kind of a thing we we were all coveting each other uh, and not paranoid about it that's kind of amazing when you think about it oh we, yeah, we yeah totally, I, mean, I, I bet I only didn't get it because I was up I was up in the the balcony here. <laughs> that was all down, you know, on the floor. <laughs> Fair, but you probably used the restroom at one point or um, went to get another drink. Then somebody coughed on you or yeah. somebody handed you a drink that did not wash their hands uh, within the last. We got Dave sick uh, from yeah. that show. I think that's the best thing we could take away. Yeah. So I'm glad I went, but, you know, should there have been a live version of that? No. And word is that the, that was supposed to go on for another year and a half of touring. Yeah. I think that version of Dave would have been great for a, a year and a half, two years on the road, but it would have been the real farewell tour. Yeah. 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 It, it, when he announced his ultimate retirement in 2022 with those, like, again, Vegas dates at the same place that were yeah. ultimately canceled, that to me, struck me as makeup dates because March 2020, of course, got canceled. But my memories of that show is, yeah, he was definitely struggling vocally, but there were some moments throughout the show that were absolutely worth the price of admission. Like, I, I have no regrets about going. I really enjoyed that night, you know. And that's kind of the sad thing about liking classic rock artists is, the you know, the, vo the voice that's, the you know, gonna, something that's going to go over time. But, uh, yeah, totally. so so fun to know that we were in the same show. We were at the same show. If we see video, I'm sure that if somebody panned around, you're like, oh, hey. Oh, yeah. There. <laughs> That's right. Well, okay. Before we get out of here, last thing. Uh, you also host your own Paltrocast, which is yes. an interview series. I have watched your podcast several times because you've had a lot of great uh, celebrity guests, and including some of my classic rock favorites. Um, for those who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about what you do on the Paltrowcast. 
Was that a, a, a David Lee Roth and Helen? Tell us how you do. Um, <laughs> I wasn't sure if he did that on purpose, but Happy yeah, accident. I, I tape interviews uh, more days of the week than not. A mix of exclusives and junkets. Sometimes you're one of 10 back-to-back interviews and sometimes, oh, you just know that person, talk to them. So it's a mix of musicians, authors, comedians, actors, chefs, athletes. There's been really famous people like Billy Corgan and Alison Brie and Ice-T and John Voight last week and Joey Badass. And then there's been occasionally just somebody you've never heard of, but somebody I really like. And from the Roth universe, there's been Sheehan and Vi and Francis Valentino. I just put him in an episode. So uh, the bottom line is it's just kind of a compilation of all these different interviews that I do. And it's on 150 or so TV and OTT outlets like Byron Allen's Local Now. And uh, it's at any moment of any day, it's streaming somewhere. And if you go to paltrocast.com, click on the calendar and you can watch the live feed and make fun of me. Oh, very good. Yes, and they're good interviews. Like you, Thank you. you ask good questions. It, it does so do you, never Joe. strike. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it never strikes me as like uh, like a call in to a radio show interview where hey, tell me about the new album and you know typical questions. Like there's a, you know, which amazes me because you have such a variety of celebrities that come through. Uh, so kudos on that. Uh, the one I watched this week, and I got to bring it up because I had sort of a. A similar experience was you interviewed Mickey Thomas from Starship. Yes, and yes. In that conversation, you asked if he was on the Brett Michaels Party Gras tour. And, you know, I'm not teasing you about that either. He said no, but they wanted they wanted us, but they got mixed up and they got Jefferson Starship instead of Starship featuring Mickey Thomas. Uh, the word I got back through the grapevine was he was pretty upset about it because he thought he was getting us <laughs> and he got the other band. I say all this to say, two years ago, I interviewed Stephanie Calvert, who used to be in Mickey's band, and mm-hmm. she told me that that exact thing happened all the time, where yeah. with promoters and, and booking agents, like that they would constantly get turned around where they would show up to an event and the, the, the booker thought it was going to be Jefferson Starship. And then they would hear that the Jefferson Starship would show up and they'd be like, where's Mickey? You know, I can imagine there's a lot of our favorite bands where there's two or three versions on the road. There was this period where there was LA guns. There was Steve Riley's LA guns. And then wasn't there also like Tracy Guns's LA guns yep. at the same time? Yeah. So you have that, and you had Warrant was out while Janie Lane of Warrant was out. Right. You have the Dokken thing, and then you have the Lynch Mob George Lynch thing going on. A lot of our favorite bands don't realize that they're cannibalizing their their stuff. So if you look at David Lee Roth is doing his thing, and there's Sammy doing his thing, and there's the Van Halen thing, you're kind of cannibalizing the whole thing. Had they just started doing the Kitchen Sink tour oh. way earlier, everyone would have won the whole time. That, I mean, that to me would have been, I mean, the ultimate tour right there. I saw <laughs> the only band I can think of that ever did something like that was 2013 Survivor did a tour with both Dave Bickler and Jimmy Jameson. And I remember thinking, like, I know they're not on the same level as Van Halen, but that's a dysfunctional band. If those guys can all get together and make it work, there's got to be some hope for Van Halen. 
Oh, and one of the most underrated bands of all time. I say that very openly about Survivor. The number of hit songs and the number of songs that don't get old. A lot of people just go, okay, yeah, I have the tiger. And yeah. then, but yeah, I know Hi and You. Okay, the search is over. Okay, uh, the song from Rocky Four. Yeah. Okay, the song from Rocky Three. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then you go through the whole list and you go, oh, Survivor's 15 songs I want to hear. And Van Halen's in that category. And there's not a lot of bands that I want to hear 15 songs by. Yes, right. And then you got Jim Peterick in the band, and he's written a whole bunch of stuff that everybody knows, but don't realize that it's him. 38 you know, special, yeah. Darren, this has been uh, an absolute blast of a conversation. I want to already want to have you back on just to talk music sometime. It's been a real treat. I really enjoyed the book. I am absolutely going to get myself a proper copy for my bookshelf. So I just want to say congrats on the book. I hope you write another one because your your research skills and your your writing are are, are top notch. And I just want to say thanks so much for coming by the show today, man. This has been fun. The kind, kind words, the wonderful interviewing skills, the support. I can't thank you enough. And the check is in the mail. Thank you. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. You know, there's no shortage of great content out there, so you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means quite a lot. If you're so inclined, please give this podcast a five-star rating and a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. And share our links wherever you can. Or mention this show to anyone you know looking for a podcast recommendation. All of this helps us out a great deal, and I appreciate it. You can connect with us on social media, too. We are at... Play That Podcast on Facebook, Threads, Blue Sky, and even TikTok. Or we are at Play That Rock and Roll on YouTube and Instagram. Please post a comment and say hello. Finally, Play That Rock and Roll is a proud member of the Pantheon podcast community. So if you're looking for more music podcasts beyond this one, trust me, start with Pantheon. You won't be disappointed. Otherwise, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great music and stories from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points.
FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.